Well, Hayes, I was thinking about this this week. Uh, kind of a tough scripture to go through, but we're committed to going through God's word together. Hey, and one of the things I was thinking about was this principle that, that we have, kind of a truth we talk about. It's a core value for us as a church that you can't do life alone, that none of us were intended to be isolated and alone, and none of us were intended to do uh, life as a maverick uh, by ourselves. And so one of the things I do with that is I try to get together with people as often as I can. So uh, I'll often ask people if they want to grab a meal together, if you want to uh, grab a cup of coffee, because I like coffee, and for the most part, coffee is inexpensive, and most people like coffee, and if you don't like coffee, we can do uh, something else. But uh, we, we try to have people over to our home as much as we can, because uh, we really believe that Christianity and ministry happen in the context of relationships. And as I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking that if I had time to sit down with every single one of you and have coffee, what would I say to you? Like, what would I kind of communicate to you? And I think it would be this. I would hope that uh, our time together, uh, our friendship, our relationship together, our time at Redemption Church together, that it would accomplish something. And my hope would be is that our time together would help you become a person who loves Jesus. And in return, that you would follow him in joyful obedience. Now, the biblical language for that is that uh, you would be a disciple. And what we would even say, the, the language that we would use is that you would be a disciple who makes disciples. Because that's really part of God's calling and identity uh, on our lives. That when you get saved by Jesus, when you know who he is, when you repent of your sin, the scripture says uh, that you're made new, you're a new creation, you're given a new identity, the Holy Spirit resides in you, you receive spiritual gifts, a new purpose, a new direction, new desires for your life. You're even given new names. Like uh, when you're saved by Jesus, the scriptures say that you're literally a saint. And I think you should all have that on your job descriptions when you put out your resume. Like, listen, I don't know if you have any saints on your staff, uh, but according to the scripture, I'm one. So it might help you to hire me. Like, you're given all those things. You're given a purpose and a mission. You're, you're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and it's this joyful cooperation of knowing Jesus, who first loved us, who died for us, who rose for us, and that we get to live for him. And as a part of that, we don't live our lives for ourselves. But we live our lives for his glory. We live our lives to accomplish his mission. And see, I think all too often Christianity kind of gets boiled down to this idea that you pray a prayer, you get some fire insurance so you're not going to go to hell, and then you kind of just live your life like twiddling your thumbs waiting for heaven or arguing about what kind of carpet the church should or, or shouldn't have. And that's not biblical Christianity. In fact, what the scriptures really say is that God has a purpose and a desire for us. And that would be my hope, that our relationships would, would kind of spur us on to know Christ, to, to seek Him, to be filled with this Holy Spirit, to walk together in joyful obedience to Him, and that we would trust as we study the Word together, as we worship Jesus together, as we do life together, that the Holy Spirit would transform us into the image and the likeness of Christ as we take step after step after step following him. And I was thinking about that this week as I was thinking about this scripture, and today we're going to talk about something that I don't think the church talks about enough, or maybe at all. In fact, we have some core values. We talk about found people, find people, that as believers we share our faith. We talk about uh, no one should do life alone. We talk about God's people give. We talked about saved people serve people. Disciples make disciples. And we can almost make this one a core value, uh, but I think it would terrify everyone 
So I don't think we will make it a core value, but here's what I do think. That because Jesus said it, we need to accept it. We need to be prepared for it. And we need to be prepared to walk in obedience to Jesus when it happens. And here's kind of the topic, what we're going after this morning is this. Is it's probably the truth no one told you when you were looking at becoming a Christ follower. When you were giving your life to Jesus. But it's something they, they should have told you, and it's this. Following Jesus in your life will cause conflict. Okay? Following Jesus in your life will cause conflict. Now, there's these really two areas that this is going to cause conflict for you. The, the first one is this. is It's going to cause internal conflict. That there's going to be times that when you walk with Jesus... What he says is going to directly go against your heart's desire, what you thought, and what you want to do. And so personally, there's going to be times where you get in a tug-of-war match with Jesus going, is it his way or is it my way? The other way this is going to happen is we live in a culture that is hostile to Jesus, the gospel, and his way of living. So at some point, as a Christ follower, you will have conflict with people around you. It could be your family. It could be at your place of employment. It could be your friends. It could be someone that you don't even know. But at some point, following Jesus will cause conflict. And see, I know that we would rather hear that Jesus wants to make us healthy, wealthy, beautiful, and give us a really great life. But Jesus actually tells us that following him will cause conflict. If you want to turn your Bibles to John 15, starting in verse 12. Jesus is speaking to a whole bunch of people. But he's mainly addressing his disciples. And he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And we love that one. Like We want to be loved and we like loving other people for the most part. And Jesus says, greater love, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. And I love what Jesus says in verse 14. You are my friends. So what Jesus is saying is friendship at the ultimate level is when we would say, hey, my life isn't as worth as much as your life, and I would be willing to surrender some things if it would help you. And what Jesus is really telling his disciples is, I want you to know that when I die for you, it's because I love you. Like, I know the cross is coming and I'm laying my life down to you. And by the way, you are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer will I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus says, listen, a servant doesn't know what the master is doing. And Jesus says, but that's not, that's not the relationship I want to have to you. He goes, I've come so that you can know the Father. Jesus says, as we study the Scriptures, everything the Father has revealed to Jesus, He has revealed to us. That's relationship. That's intimacy. That means that we're not left in the dark, but Jesus calls us to the inner circle. And He says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whoever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I have commanded to you so that you would love one another. And we're like, yes. 
I want that. Like, I want that relationship. I want that intimacy. I, I want to understand the deep, mysterious things that, that the Father has revealed to the Son and the Son has revealed to us. But then Jesus keeps going. We like to stop there, but Jesus keeps going. He says, oh, and by the way, if the world hates you, like this is the same sentence. I've commanded this to you so you love one another. And by the way, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will also keep yours. But these things they will do on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but know now they have no excuse for their sin. Jesus says, listen, love one another. It's like there's no excuse to be a jerk. And if people hate you because you cut people off in traffic and you're rude to them, then that's on you. But Jesus says, listen, because you love me, because I've called you out of this world, because you you follow me and love me and have a relationship with me, I want you to understand something. The world will hate you. Like Jesus says, you should predict opposition in your life. You should expect conflict. In fact, I think we could go as far to say is if we're not experiencing some opposition, we have to ask ourselves, are we more conformed to the culture or are we more conformed to Christ who said he would be persecuted and so would we? Now, the reason we bring that all up, because this is the issue of Thyatira. That this is the thing that is happening in the church, is they're asking the question, how do we as Christ followers, how do we as disciples relate to and live in a world that directly opposes and is hostile to the truth that Jesus has given us? And it has huge implications. What does it mean for us socially? What does it mean for us professionally? What does it mean for us financially? And so Jesus wants to address the church. And before he addresses the church, he first reminds them of who he is. He says, hey, these are the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus reminds them, I am the Son of God. Now this is interesting. Because usually in Scripture, the title that Jesus uses for himself is, I am the Son of Man. And when he says, I am the Son of Man, what he's referring to is his humanity, that he took on the flesh. But here when Jesus says, I am the Son of God, what he's reminding them is, don't forget my authority and my sovereignty. Don't forget my deity. But Jesus is giving them this picture of, don't forget that I died on the cross, but I rose again and I'm resurrected in glory and authority and I sit on a throne, and all things are under my rule and my reign. The way David talks about it in the Psalms is the earth is the footstool of God. So like when Jesus sits in his lazy boy or in his throne, he like rests his feet on the earth. That's how much sovereignty and power and glory he has. And he reminds us that that power and authority is over also your life and my life. And also the life of our church. He says that he has eyes of fire. Nobody has this picture of Jesus hanging next to their bed. 
Because this is scary Jesus. This isn't like holding a baby lamb Jesus. Jesus is going, listen, I have eyes that are like fire. And here's what he means. It means that he sees through the superficial. It means that you can't front and hide from Jesus. He knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. He knows our motives. Like we do this thing where we pretend to be okay when we're not okay. Jesus says, by the way, don't forget, you can't fool me. I see all. I see your heart, your thoughts, your motives, and your desires. And he says, and by the way, I have feet who are like burnished bronze. I have found nothing to support my claim on this, but I just think it means Jesus never skipped leg day in the gym. I think the dude was swole with his calf muscles. And actually, it's a reference to uh, all throughout Scripture. In fact, you see in Daniel that whenever you see bronze and feet referred to as an image, it means that there's glory and strength. It means that God is immovable, that you can push back, but you'll never push him back. It's a reference to the fact that wherever God goes and wherever he stands is holy ground. But it's also... It's also an imagery of war. It's an imagery of he has weapons of war, which in this case are his feet, that he is dug in, that it is holy, that where he stands is the place, that he doesn't sway to the left, he doesn't sway to the right, but he is a firm foundation, immovable, and unshakable. And then Jesus tells the church, hey, there's some stuff that you're doing that is really, really good. And I love this because what he, what he says to them is, he says, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed your first. He says, listen, you're a church that loves people. You live by faith. He says that you serve people. He says that you're enduring. Like, this is a great church. In fact, what he told the church in Ephesus was, you need to go back to what you did in the beginning. But what he tells this church is, you're doing better now than you did in the beginning. That you're like a fine wine. You've gotten better with age. But then Jesus quickly goes to what he has against them. And he says this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent. This is God's grace. I'm giving her time. I'm calling her to repentance. I've given her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. Unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart and I will give to you each according to your work. Now, let me give you a little bit of background on Thyatira to kind of give you some perspective. Of all the towns, Thyatira is probably the least important with the least prominence. Thyatira is 40 miles southeast of Pergamum, and it's a blue-collar trade town. So this is a place where things are made. Uh, This is a place where everybody punches a time card. Uh, This is a place where the whole family probably works in the local factory. And the the things that come out of Thyatira are things like bronze, uh, things like 
colored clothing uh, and shoes. Now, one of the things that's interesting is most commentators say that kind of strategically, Thyatira was placed on a major crossroad in its region. So everybody traveled through uh, Thyatira, so goods could travel from Thyatira to the whole region of Asia. But it was also intentionally left unprotected. So that if an, if an invading army came to Thyatira, they would take time to loot and plunder and steal from the people in Thyatira so that then the surrounding more important cities had time to get their army ready and protect themselves. So there was no government presence in Thyatira. Like in other cities, there really wasn't a worship of the emperor. There's not big city walls. It's kind of like, I know it's not so much there anymore, but like back in the day you went to Huntley and they had all the outlet malls. That's kind of like Thyatira. Like, we're going to hit the Nike store and the purse store, and there's just a lot of shops there. And so what happened is, because there's no government presence, no government protection, what happens in Thyatira is they put together and form what are known as guilds. Now, we don't talk about guilds, so let me tell you what the guilds are. Guilds were literally like a mixture of a trade union, the mafia, and a frat house. So this is like Animal House meets Goodfellas. I mean, seriously. And so what would happen is, guilds were actually at the center of the life in Thyatira. Uh, for most people, what would happen is you would inherit whatever business your father was in. So if your father worked with bronze, you worked with bronze. If your father worked with clothing, you worked with clothing. And you would inherit whatever business your family already had. But in Thyatira, to do business you had to be part of a local guild. So if you showed up in Thyatira and shut up shop without first joining a guild or being welcomed into a guild, your shop wouldn't make it. They would come and tear it down and escort you out of the city. Socially, the guild was your people. This was your family. This was your social life. That weddings, birthdays, major events all happened at the guild. You didn't rent a reception hall. You got married in the guild. You celebrated in the guild. If you went to dinner on Friday night, you went to the fish fry at your local guild. And so the guild watched out for people. Uh, the guild actually set the price and enforced the prices of good and trade so they would make sure their people were being taken care of and paid. Uh, they didn't have welfare or health care in Syratyra. There was no such thing as unemployment if you got hurt. So your local guild took care of you. The local guild had the doctor, and if you were sick, you took your children to the guild to see the guild doctor. If you were injured on the job, the guild took up an offering and then distributed that money to family so that you didn't go poor. And if you wanted to needed a little bit of help if someone was coming after you or your business, if you were having a little bit of trouble with someone, you went to the local guild, and the guild took care of your problems with you and for you. Now, before you say, that actually sounds great. How do I sign up? Each guild also had a local god or goddess that they worshipped. So, for instance, if you were in the bronze industry and you were part of that guild, they would worship the god Apollo because it has to do with the fire and the sun. And so what you would do is you would go to the guild, and what most things happen at the guild is you would go to the guild and first make an animal sacrifice. You'd bring a cow or a lamb, 
And they would sacrifice that animal to that god. And then what they would do is they would cook up the meat and you would eat the meat in a festival uh, honoring that god. And then what you would do is after you ate the, the meal, you would drink a lot, of lime, a, a lot of wine. And then there was kind of a Mardi Gras sexual immorality type event that happened in the guild. And that was just Tuesday night. I mean, that was like every night at the guild that was happening. In fact, I read one commentator that said that the most powerful guild in Thyatira was the prostitution guild because they did business with all the other guilds. And that's what happened in the life of the guild. And so here's the conflict. Uh, People are getting saved by Jesus. They want to walk in obedience to him. They're, They're hearing the word of God. But the question is, what do you do about the guild? Like, how do you continue to participate? Like, how do you go have a meal that literally they're they're dripping blood over a statue of a false god, worshiping it, and then saying, hey, eat the meat that was sacrificed and come commit immorality with us. So there's tension in the life of the believers. And so on one hand, you've got this, how do I honor God and love God? How do I worship Him and be transformed into His image and likeness? And on the other hand, you go, but if I don't go, if I back out, If I don't participate, my goods might not get sold. Like if I take my children to the guild doctor and he hears that I haven't been at the guild for a while, he might refuse to see my children or just continually bump them to the bottom of the list. Or at worst, the guild could make me an enemy. They could outcast me and oppose me. They could kick my family out of town. So there's all this conflict and concern. The Christians in Thyatira wondering, how do we work for a living? What do we do about our guild? Our family's been a part of our guild for generations. So in walks a woman who is part of the church. And we don't have a ton of detail about how it happens, but I assume she starts a Bible study, she calls herself a prophet, Uh, she begins a community group, and she begins to tell people, hey, God has given me a vision or some new information of how we handle this tension. And the best way I can kind of describe this to you is when I was a kid, uh, my friends and I would ride our bikes all over town. We'd go down to the local pool. We'd just have a ton of fun. We'd go wherever our two legs could take us on our bike. And back then, things were a little bit cheaper. And so we would go to a gas station, and you could get a big gulp, like 64-ounce pop for like 50 cents. And then you could get a Butterfinger bar for like another 50 cents. So like a dollar went a long way as a kid. And so I remember we would, we would go down to this one gas station where we could get the big gulp. And, and I was never a big fan of it because I thought it tasted disgusting. But my friends would take the big gulp, and maybe you've done this before, and they would take a little bit of pop from every selection. You ever done it? It's like the fountain suicide, they call it. And so it's like root beer, orange pop, diet pop, regular pop, I mean, whatever you can do. And like I had friends that swore it was great. It was gross. And it was like a purplish, neon black color. And the reason I tell you that is because that's kind of what this woman is bringing to the church. Like, no, 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 listen, you can worship Jesus. And you can worship Apollos. Like, Jesus understands. Like, Jesus doesn't want you to suffer. Jesus doesn't want you to lose your job. Jesus doesn't want you to hurt financially. Jesus is giving us permission to participate in whatever we have to participate in to make it. And see, what's interesting is Jesus doesn't call the woman by name. He calls the woman by her spirit or by her attitude. The big 
sin in the church is that they have tolerated this woman and her teaching. Uh, that some people in the church have said, hey, we think she's right, so we're going to go uh, just live wild in the guild and we'll worship on Sunday morning. But there's a whole bunch of people in the church that have not compromised and they're faithful. But what Jesus said is even if you're not participating, what you are doing is you're tolerating this woman, Jezebel. Real quick history lesson. In the Old Testament, in the days of Elijah, if you want to read about Jezebel, you can read 1 Kings and 2 Kings. But Jezebel is a, a woman who has political authority, spiritual authority, and a lot of financial ability. What she does is Jezebel seduces King Ahab, who's the king of Israel. Uh, you can go read this in 1 Kings 16.31. Uh, the scriptures say that, that King Ahab committed all kinds of sins, but his worst sin was marrying this woman. So guys, not all women who are interested in you are the right one. I'm just saying. So King Ahab marries Jezebel. She seduces him and then convinces him to begin to worship the false god Baal. And in the process, she outlaws the worship of God. In fact, she outlaws being a prophet of God. And she begins to kill God's prophets. And then what they do is, even in the nation of Israel, they enforce the worship of Baal, which is really a religion of promiscuity, prostitution, child sacrifice, really bad stuff. And so what happens then is, Jezebel picks a fight with Elijah and loses. And what the scriptures later say is that Jezebel is thrown out a window, trampled by horses, and then eaten by dogs. A lot of ways to go, don't want to go that way. But that's like part of God's punishment for her sin, the way that she dies. And this woman becomes so evil that she becomes a type. Her name is actually used to refer to kind of type of people or the spirit of people. It's like being called a Benedict Arnold or a Judas or Adolf. Uh, not names that are trending baby names. You know, oh, we named him Benedict Arnold, or meet baby Judas, or meet my son Adolf. I mean, you go, ah, probably better names you could have found. And so Jesus is calling out this woman in the church, and he's using the name Jezebel. He's going, listen, this woman is perverting your worship. She's perverting the truth. She's seducing you. And what she's really doing is updating the Word of God to fit the culture that surrounds God's people. Listen, God knows if we update, if we kind of make a 2.0 of this, if we take God's word to better fit our culture, it will reveal the tension, it will it'll let go of the conflict, and we can be happy, and the people around us will like us better. And what Jesus says is this theology is actually satanic theology. What he says to the church is some of you have learned the deep ways of Satan, the enemy, the deceiver. And see, the reason we have to talk about this is because this still happens today. On a personal level, you can take your favorite sin and you can then find a blogger on the internet who would like to help you justify that sin. And you go, yeah, I don't really like God's word about this pornography thing. I don't like God's word about this waiting until I'm married thing. I don't like God's word about not being able to sleep around. Like, I don't like God's word about not being able to steal things. Like, so help me justify it. 
And you can find some guy who still lives in his mom's basement who struggles with the same thing you do, but he created a blog. And he would like to help you justify committing that sin and staying in that sin. And what Jesus says is that is a Jezebel spirit. And so on one hand, we have to face, are we willing to surrender to God's Word? Or do we look for ways to edit God's Word, to get around God's Word, to better fit our motive, our heart, and our desire? And so it'll cause us our own conflict, but it'll also cause us conflict with people. And, and if you're here and you're like checking out Christianity, if you're wondering what this whole Christ follower thing's about, I want you to hear me. This isn't about people who aren't Christ followers. This isn't about people who aren't disciples. Jesus is talking about people who call themselves Christians. And maybe this is one of the things that's hindered you in discovering what Christianity is all about. Because you're like, listen, I know some of them. And they yell at the world about their sin, but they find ways around their own sin. The sins they don't struggle with are okay. But the sins they struggle with, they, they manipulate and they get around and they get on websites and they find Bible studies to justify their sins. And I want you to know, Jesus is frustrated with the same thing that you are frustrated with. And it also causes conflict with our personal relationships. But listen, one of my hardest days in ministry is when a guy who was a part of our church met with me for tacos. And told me that the reason they haven't been around for a while is he was having a midlife crisis. And the way he was going to deal with his midlife crisis is he was going to sleep around, spend lots of time and money at the casino, and was ultimately thinking about leaving his wife because she didn't agree with the way he was dealing with his midlife crisis. And I'm like, bro, you, you, like, you say that you're a Christ father. Like, you've got some decisions to make. And then he told me this. He says, listen, a friend of mine is in the same place. In fact, he's been doing this for a while, and he actually says meeting new women at our age is a lot of fun. And we found a website that's a Christian website that says men need to go through this and just get it out of their system. And he said, even better, his church is totally cool with it. He teaches a Bible study, and I'm going to start going to the Bible study. And I was in the position of, do I love him and not say anything? Or do I love him and then tell him the truth? And see, friends, being a Christian will cause conflict in you and in your relationships around you. And I, I don't want you to miss this. Churches are doing this today. But there's all kinds of churches going, listen, we need to be more popular, we need to be more acceptive, we need people to think that we're hip and cool and trendy and that, you know, this Jesus thing, it's a little outdated, written a little over 2,000 years ago, it even goes further back than that, so we need to update it so people aren't offended by our Jesus. And listen, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus is speaking to people who are interested in following him. And he said to all of them, if any of you would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his, his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when it comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Listen, church, following Jesus has always been countercultural. Following Jesus has always caused conflict in a culture that opposes Jesus, his teachings, and his miracles. And, and the thing is, is we need to walk in love, but we also need to walk in love and stand on the truth of God. Listen, as disciples, Jesus says this. He says, a disciple or a student is never greater than the teacher, which means this. You and I don't get to update, edit, and change Scripture to release the conflict and to be more accepting and not to have to have hard conversations with the people around us. We have to ask ourselves, are we willing to deny ourselves, surrender ourselves, possibly lose our lives so that Jesus gets the honor and the glory in our lives? Now, I want you to hear me because the message isn't be a jerk. The message is we love people. And we never seek to be offensive. Being offensive is never the goal. But it also means, church, that we never back down from the truth of the gospel. I think of it this way. It means we love people and we serve people. But we never agree with the sin of one another. I look at Jesus. Jesus was the most accepting person that ever walked the face of the planet. And his disciples, we need to follow his example and his methods and his way of life. Listen, one of the reasons the, the religious people hated Jesus was because he was always surrounded by tax collectors and prostitutes. It amazes me that unsaved people love to be around Jesus. And Jesus always said, hey, come as you are. Listen, I'll love you and I'll serve you. I'll give you a meal. We can spend time together. But Jesus never allowed people to, to stay the way they were when they first came to him. Like, if you read through the Gospels, Jesus is always inviting people to himself and then saying, hey, by the way, I want to call you out of your sin. I want to give you abundant life. I, I think of Jesus seeing Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Hey, we're having dinner at your house tonight. And even the sinners are like, yeah, but we're not tax collectors. They're worse than we are. And then they have a conversation, and he goes, you know what? Jesus, you're right. I'm going to give back all the money I've stole and even more. It's like Jesus meeting the woman at the well and saying, listen, I understand you're thirsty. I just know the way that you're trying to quench your thirst will never work. So why don't you give me a conversation with your husband? The woman says, well, Jesus, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, that's because you have five husbands. And listen, lady, if five's not doing it, six isn't going to do it either. And he goes, but I'm the living water. And that we love people and we accept people. Listen, we are a church filled with hurting, broken people. And see, the message this morning is this, is that God loves you. And that God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross in your place for your sins. 
Listen, the thing that we all have in common is we all sin. We've all rebelled against God. We all choose our way over his way. We choose our desires over his desires. We create our own truth and put our truth above his truth. And what the scripture says is that is sin. It is rebellion and it is offensive to God and it is punishable by death and experiencing the wrath of God. But God loved you so much that he didn't send a disgruntled angel He sent us his best, his son Jesus. And that his death and his erection accomplish our salvation. And that Jesus dies on the cross in our place for our sin. That he rises on the third day victorious over Satan, sin, and death. And that victory can be ours. That even though we were once far from God, we are now adopted sons and daughters of God. That the Holy Spirit is in us, causing us to be new creations with new hearts, new identities. That we have co-inheritance with Christ and the heavenly realms. We're given power. We're given purpose. And that we have promises that we can claim today that will also be ours for all of eternity. So church, we love people. Like we don't care what they're sinning. You're welcoming. And listen, this church will never be a perfect church simply because I'm involved in it. And I'm a screwed up dude. And see, sometimes the church, people look at the church and go, yeah, but the church is just a bunch of hypocrites. We're like, yeah, we are, and there's room for you too. And so we do life together, but here's the deal. We never get comfortable with one another's sin. And we cannot allow sin to be redefined as sexual preference or lifestyle choices or a change in morality. The reason sin has to be called sin is because sin allows us to understand that we are people who are in need of a Savior. So we can't call it a bad choice. We can't call it a mistake. We can't call it a preference. We have to call sin, sin, so we can make much of our Savior who died for our sins. And that means that we're going to experience conflict. It means that someone's going to come up to you that you have a relationship with and you're going to say, I love you, guys, but listen, I can't participate and do what we used to do because I'm a new creation in Christ with new, new identity and a new lifestyle. It means that you're going to have relationships with people who go, I love you, but that thing you're doing, the scripture calls that sin. And the reason I'm telling you that is because I love you and I think it'll harm you. Like, I don't want to see you poke the sin and get bit any more than I want to see you poke a rattlesnake not knowing that it's venomous. And so sometimes love means telling people the truth. It means there's times that you're going to have to tell people, I love you, but there's something we need to talk about. And they might call you a bigot, close-minded, hard-hearted, and walk away from you. Church, I get it. Because I don't want to offend people. And we work hard not to offend people. And the way we say it at Redemption Church is the only thing we want to offend people is the truth of Jesus. Like sometimes we'll say, hey, I hope you had a great time this morning. And I also know that sometimes you're not supposed to have a great time on Sunday morning because the Holy Spirit comes in like a surgeon and says, hey, see this area? That's cancer. And we got to take care of it. So church... I want to remind you that we love a guy 
who was crucified because he claimed to be God, because he had the power to perform miracles, because he had the authority to forgive sins, because he was calling home lost sons and daughters back to their heavenly father for this life and all of eternity, and they murdered him for it. If we love Jesus, if we worship Jesus, if we follow Jesus, if we lovingly declare to others Jesus, we should expect to lose some friendship. But we shouldn't be invited to every single party. And we need to accept that people will walk away from us, hate us, and oppose us. And what Jesus says to the church is the same thing that he says to us. He says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay another burden upon you. Only hold fast until I come. And what we do is that we walk in repentance. That one of the ways that we, we follow Jesus, guys, is we just walk in repentance. We know that Jesus is the guy with feet of bronze and eyes of fire. He knows our thoughts. He knows our motives. He knows our deeds. Where he stands is holy ground. Culture doesn't redefine Jesus. Jesus defines the culture that we live in. And that even as Christ followers, we walk in repentance. That whenever we realize we've allowed culture to inform our mind, to inform our heart, to inform our decisions, we repent of that and say, Jesus, I need to be more like you. I want my thoughts to be like your thoughts. I want my heart to be like your heart. I want my life to be like your life. And we also need to repent of the times that we're afraid. Afraid of sharing the gospel. Ashamed of telling someone about Jesus. Ashamed that we have a best friends who we love that we've never told about Jesus. We need to repent of that. I love what J.I. Packer says about repentance. He says, repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself, as much as you know to your God. And as our knowledge grows, these three points, and so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. And whenever we see sin in our lives, we just go before God and go, God, it's wrong. It's sin. I'm sorry. Change me. And listen, the longer you're a Christ follower, the more aware you become of your sin. And we walk with repentance. And what God says is that he would actually reward us. He says, to the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I give authority over nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when the earth pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. But what Jesus tells the church is for those who endure, for those who hold on, that Jesus will actually share with us his authority and his power and his glory. That in our life, because of Christ, we will give up authority. We will give up popularity. But we will give up glory given to us by men. But Christ says in heaven he will replace that with his glory, with his power and his authority. But Jesus literally says that you and I are shareholders in his glory, that we are shareholders in his power, that we are shareholders in his authority. And the question for us, church, becomes, will we seek the comfort, the accolades, and the popularity of fitting into culture? Or will we seek first Jesus and his kingdom? Will we take up our cross, treasure our God, and lovingly proclaim the gospel, 
even though it will cause conflict, even though it may cause hardship, knowing that we will not experience rest or reward until heaven. I think what Jesus says to you and me this morning is to repent, but also to hold fast. Not to let go of Jesus, even though we live in a culture that says, let go of Jesus. Let me pray for it.